listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, if you need to use table of contents, no shame in that. Luke 24 is where we're going to be. My name is Brandon Hayes. I'm the next gen pastor at Southcrest and excited for y'all to be with us today. Looking forward to what God is going to do. Uh, going to be a great time together. And man, just great, great Easter morning. It's beautiful outside. It's going to be a good time. What's up, man? <laughs> um, hey, so I've been here 13 years uh, serving on staff, and my wife and I will be married 12 years in just a few days, April 16th. She likes to say it's the 15th, but it is officially the 16th. I'm the I'm the guy that remembers the day. It's okay. <laughs> um, but I remember when Lauren and I met. Some of y'all heard some of this story before. But uh, we had, I was, in, I was in college at the Baptist College of Florida. And one of, my, one of my best friends was married to one of her lifelong best friends. And for about two years, they were telling us that we needed to meet. We needed to get to know each other. And uh, we were both just kind of reluctant to, to meet. Not for any main reason, we just, our big reason, we just... We were in different cities and kind of different uh, life paths at the time, so we weren't planning on meeting. I remember it was a Friday. It was the Friday I graduated, actually, and uh, her best friend from like kindergarten called me, Brittany, and said, hey, before you move to South Carolina for the summer, before you then move to God's country to go to Texas, yeah, um, you need to go on one date with Lauren, just one blind date. So I finally said, okay, and Lauren kind of did the same Okay, she knew I went to a Bible college. I think she was afraid that literally I would show up on a date with like a Bible and ready to give the invitation. And so she was, she was more reluctant than I was, let's put it that way. And uh, we finally met. And I remember within about five minutes of meeting her, I was like, oh, this is why they've been telling me we should meet for so long. I remember the next morning, uh, I was back at my parents' house. And before I moved uh, to camp or to work at camp that summer, and I was eating breakfast that morning, that, that uh, Saturday, and my mom came out. She said, hey, how was the double date? And he weren't really excited about it. And I was like, mom, whoa. And it wasn't something that she did. It wasn't like, man, the way Lauren chewed her food was just gorgeous, right? Like, no, it was who she, who she was and is that was like, oh, meeting her changed, literally changed my life. Some of you, maybe you can relate to that with this morning. Like you've um, been told you need to come to church or that you need to know Jesus and you're kind of reluctant. You've been reluctant. I would say, man, I can't wait for you to meet Jesus because Jesus changes everything. Maybe you've been coming for a while to church, but you're still just kind of, ugh, feels like another, another Sunday. And the reality is that that may be because, you know, like all of our relationships, we can grow cold and maybe uh, what feels distant in our relationship with God. And my prayer for you this morning, if you already know Jesus, is that you would just be reminded, reminded of how incredible he is. Now, a couple of things to know before we dig into this text. First of all, so you're not surprised, we're going to read the whole chapter. So if we get going and you're like, how far is he going? We're going the whole way, okay? <laughs> we're going to read the whole chapter. So hang in there. We, we believe this is God's word. And so why not read it, right? Um, but also to give you a little bit of context, where we're jumping in in Luke 24. So where we're jumping in in Luke 24 uh, precedes some important events. So I would encourage you at some point, if you've not, if you're new to 
the Bible. I would encourage you to read all of the Gospel of Luke. But we see that Jesus had been carrying out his ministry for about three years. And that over time, thousands of people were beginning to follow Jesus and beginning to listen to Jesus. He healed the lame, made the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He cast out demons. He raised, raised a dude from the dead. This was big stuff. And he preached a gospel of forgiveness, the gospel of the kingdom, that in Jesus, the kingdom of God was at hand, meaning you could, you could reach out and grab it. It was right there because he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, he entered Jerusalem in Passover week. And as he came into Jerusalem, the crowds were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Like they were so excited. But in a week's time, the crowd had turned, primarily because of the religious leaders' actions, go figure, the crowd, the crowd had turned. They were saying, crucify, crucify. They couldn't find anything wrong to accuse him of. Pilate even said, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna, one of the Roman leaders. I'm going to wash my hands of this. I, this man's innocent. But still, they said, crucify, crucify. And Jesus was beaten to a bloody pulp. And he was forced to carry a cross to a hill called Golgotha. And there, his feet were nailed to the cross and his hands, his wrists were nailed to the cross. And he hung there for hours and eventually breathed his last. Even they, to make sure he was dead, they stuck a spear in his side. Water and blood flowed from his body. He was later pulled down off that cross and placed into a tomb on Friday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday is where we pick up in Luke 24. It says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. When it says they, if you go back to chapter 23, you know he's referring to a group of women that followed Jesus closely. They found, excuse me, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, which this was a big deal. Once a stone was in front of a grave, you did not move it. There were prices to be paid for messing with a grave. The stone was rolled away. So immediately there's confusion. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now they're even more confused. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So this is not like um, a Louis Vuitton or a Armani, like dazzling meaning gleaming. This is almost as if the sun is shining. It's referring to angels. It says the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. And here's what the angel said to them. Why are you, or asked them, I should say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Can you imagine, like, can you just picture their faces in that moment as that they've gone in sorrow to this tomb, but now these angels are saying, hey, Jesus is alive. He's not here just like he told you. He told you, which if you read through the Gospels, sure enough, he did. He told them, hey, I'm going to die, but three days later, I'm going to rise again. It turns out Jesus wasn't playing around. <laughs> he was serious that he would die for the sins of the world and then rise again on the third day. Verse 9 says, returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, mother the mother, sorry, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Now, I don't want to like chase a rabbit here, but this is like 
sadly the case too often that godly women are, are like sharing some good news and the men are like, that can't be you women sit down. Like, hey guys, we'd just be better off if we, if we listen to women when God is working in their lives, okay? Mini sermon over, all right? Peter actually took what they said to heart. Peter says, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. So first you have the women who are like, this is, this is crazy. Now, Peter, he's ran to the tomb and he saw the same thing, that Jesus is not in there. So you can see like, just the confusion on his face, like what? excitement, but also there's no way. How could this be happening? Verse 13, the, the camera, so to speak, ships and we see a different scene. It says, now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. So, so something supernatural is, go, supernatural is going on here, right? Like they, these are two people that clearly knew who Jesus was. They're, they're in distress over what happened. And he shows up and is walking alongside them. And they have no clue who it is. This is awesome. It says, verse 17, then he asked them, hey, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? They stopped walking and they looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, which notice, I feel like there's a little sass here in this question. (laughs) Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there, happened there in these days? What things? He asked them. (laughs) Jesus got jokes, (laughs) y'all, right? Like, they're clearly talking about him. Everyone is in an uproar because of what happened with Jesus. They say, Jesus, do you not know what happened? He's like, I don't, what are y'all talking about? T- tell me about this. I think Jesus is having fun with this moment. They said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action, and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophet spoke. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Hey, just as a side note, I think that's a great way to describe what God's voice sounds like. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. That when God's speaking to you, that there's 
There's something in your heart that stirs. And I would say most often it's as you're reading the scriptures. So maybe you're here this morning, you, you would say you don't know Jesus, but already as we've been talking and primarily reading the scripture, something in your heart is stirring. You're like, no, it's not the Mexican food I had last night. Like there's something different going on. I, I don't, I can't say for certain, but it's possible that God is speaking to you right now. That very hour, verse 33, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those with them gathered together. They said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were saying these things, he, he himself, Jesus, stood in their midst. So the picture is, uh, again, and Jesus in his resurrected body, he can just show up in places and just disappear when he wants. So he didn't knock on the door and walk in. All of a sudden, as they're standing there and chatting about what's going on, boom, Jesus is in the room. (laughs) And we know how they reacted based on what he says to them. Peace to you. Hey, y'all calm down, right? Peace. This is, they were startled and terrified. They thought they were seeing a ghost. Why? Because Jesus truly died. He actually died. We have some friends who have the Muslim faith, and the Muslim faith teaches that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, that uh, he was pulled off and someone else was placed there because the prophet of God like that wouldn't actually die. That, that's, that's not accurate. The biblical perspective, the biblical fact, excuse me, the biblical truth is that Jesus actually died. That's why they're terrified that there's no way that this guy's alive because we saw that he died. We know he was buried in a tomb. So he says, why, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, hey, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Like I love in their shock and awe moment, Jesus seems so calm and collected, right? Like, hey, y'all got some fish. I'll eat this real quick and show you. I'm actually alive. It's not just a spirit. It's not just a ghost. He is alive. He goes on to tell them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. So Luke, who wrote this gospel, also wrote the book of Acts. And if you know from Acts chapter two, that's when the Holy Spirit was sent to indwell believers. That's what Jesus is referring to there. Verse 50, then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. 
After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple praising God. Friends, this morning, April 9th, 2023, Jesus is alive. The death, death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't handle him. He is alive. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he sent his spirit to indwell us and to lead us and to guide us. We can have relationship with God because of the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here this morning. But I want to remind you, we this morning aren't just celebrating an event. We're celebrating a person, that we get to be with Jesus, that he is the hope of the world. So it's incredibly important to know this story, to know the the resurrection account. But it's not just about knowing the story. It's about knowing the person. There's three things from this story that I want to make sure we walk away with, not just so we know a story, but so that we better know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus at all, my hope is that you would meet him this morning. So what's the first truth about Jesus I want to see in this text? It's this. Number one, Jesus can handle your doubts. Jesus can handle your doubts. Now, I want to be careful. What I, I don't mean like he loves your doubt. And he's all about it. Like, yeah, you're doubting. But what I mean is your doubts don't scare him. Your doubts, your questions don't intimidate him. He doesn't see your doubt and go, ooh, get away from me. No, he sees your doubt and says, hey, you have questions. You have concerns. You have doubt. I can handle that. <laughs> he's not afraid of it. He's big enough to handle whatever questions or concerns you may have about the Christian faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus for salvation because you have some questions. Jesus says, bring them on. Maybe in your walk with Christ, you're kind of, maybe you feel like you're pushing back a little bit and like, I don't know, I have some concerns or just, does God hear me? Does he care for me? Is this really his word? You know what? He invites you to come to him and ask him those things because he is sure enough steady enough, solid enough, he can handle it. Look at it in the text. In verse 37, when he showed up in their midst and they're terrified, like, ah, is this a ghost? And he knows they're doubting. He did not go, all right, you guys had your chance. I showed up to you. I showed you that I'm alive. But you know what? Because you doubted, out, not following me anymore. (laughs) That's not what he said. What does he do? He says, look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. And he's like, hey, give me some fish. Let me eat this. He meets them right where they're at in their doubt and in their uncertainty. Jesus can handle that. He's inviting you to come to him with your doubts and your questions because he's not afraid of it. And this is not just an isolated event. Like we shouldn't read this and go, well, like that's just Jesus. He was happy because he beat death and I was in a good mood. No, this was who Jesus always was and is that he's merciful. He's patient with us as we doubt and as we struggle and as we have questions. Y'all, if the 12 at this point, the 11 doubted and they are standing there seeing Jesus face to face, surely you and I are going to doubt from time to time. And don't by the lie that, oh, oh, I guess I must not be a Christian or God won't have anything to do with me. No, let your doubt drive you to the feet of Jesus. And if you still are not, if you're having doubts about what I'm saying, think about Jude. In the book of Jude, verse 22, Jude writes 
have mercy on those who have doubt. So he's talking to believers in that book, and he's saying, hey, for those who are having questions, those who are having doubt, have mercy on them. Keep in mind, the book of Jude deals so much with false teachers and false, false beliefs. And what Jude is saying, hey, when, when someone is struggling, when they're having a question on wh- which way to believe, be merciful with them, be patient with them. I can't help but think that Jude, that was his mode of operation because that's how Jesus had treated him. Do you remember, if, you, if you're familiar with the Gospels, in the Gospels in John chapter 7, it says that even Jesus' brothers, which Jude was a half-brother, blood brother of Jesus, Jesus' brothers didn't believe who he was. I think, G, excuse me, I think Jude told believers to be merciful with those who doubt because that's how Jesus treated Jude. And because Jude felt the mercy and grace of Jesus, even in his doubt, he eventually followed his brother as Lord and Savior. I think about Peter, man, bold Peter, right? Confident. He sees Jesus walking on the water. What does he do? I'm coming out there too. He takes a step out of the water. Can you imagine that moment when he put a foot on the water and he didn't sink? No, the disciples are like, what? And he takes another and another. He walks toward Jesus. But do you remember what happened? I mean, this is an incredible moment. He's having so much faith and confidence in who Jesus is. But then he sees the wind and the waves crashing around him. He takes his eyes off Jesus and he begins to what? He begins to sink. And what did Jesus do? Good luck, you little doubter. Better luck next year. <laughs> no. no! Jesus grabbed him by the hand. He said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I don't think he's smacking him with that statement. No, he's picking him back up and saying, hey, fix your eyes on me. Hey, you can trust me. He met him right where he was. John the Baptist, such a bold believer, paved the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. John the Baptist so confident. It's like before Jesus even really started his ministry, John the Baptist is pointing at Jesus saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. This is the Messiah, God, the son. So bold. But then as John the Baptist is sitting in a prison cell waiting for Herod to cut his head off to please some sicko people in his life, John the Baptist sends word to Jesus, really sends a question to Jesus. Hey, uh, are you really the Christ or should we wait for someone else? John the Baptist, who was boldly following Jesus as a Jesus follower, all of a sudden is having doubt, a crisis of faith before he dies. Jesus did not rebuke him. Jesus did not reprimand him and say, John, you're so pathetic. I thought you were better than that. No, Jesus sent word back to John Tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. (laughs) He just told John, like, yeah, I am who I say I am. He met him in his doubt. Think about doubting Thomas. How would you like that you doubt Jesus one time and for the rest of your life, people call you doubting fill in the blank, right? Like all this doubt so many times we're just not recorded in the Bible. Praise the Lord for that. Thomas fundamentally doubted the basics of Christianity. He doubted that Jesus rose from the dead. When they told him, hey, Jesus is alive, he said, unless I can put my hand in those scars, unless I can put my hand in his side, I don't believe it. 
I'm not going there. No way. I saw that he was dead. Jesus waited a whole week. Some scholars say eight days, but let's call it a week. A whole week before he went to Thomas. Sometimes when you're doubting and having questions, God doesn't answer you right away. Sometimes he lets you sit and mold in that moment. But but Jesus eventually went to Thomas and called him by name. Hey, Thomas, come here. Come put your hands in my hands. Put Touch the scars. Put your hand in my side. And what did Thomas do when Jesus met him in his doubt? Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And he followed him till death, literally. Jesus can handle your doubt. Friends, he's inviting you this morning to come to him with your doubt and be honest with him, not to stay content in your doubt and just, just sit in your doubt, but no, to come to him with your doubt and watch him tor- turn your doubt into doorways of delight in him, that he really is who he says he is. I love what <clears throat> Joseph Minnick says, that as you seek him, you will find him seeking you. And that's the truth. That we, we sometimes doubt God and, and oh, I'm going to go pursue God. I'm going to seek after him. But really what you'll find is that he all along was pursuing you because he's really, really good. Leads me to the second truth we've got to see about Jesus in the text today, and that is Jesus is better than you think. He is better than you think. So like just sounds kind of anticlimactic, I know. What I'm trying to say is however good you think Jesus is, he is objectively better than that. However satisfying you think you find him, however glorious and majestic you think he is, he actually is better than you've been able to embrace or imagine. Jesus is better than you think. You know, it's, it's a habit. It's human nature for us to doubt God's goodness and just to doubt how amazing he is. Like, look back. I said we would come back to this, and I'll keep my word. Look back um, in verses 19 through 24. I'll just kind of summarize. But they're telling Jesus, here's what happened. We thought Jesus was a great prophet. We thought God was going to use him, it says in verse 21, to redeem Israel. We thought he was a really great guy. And it says Jesus in verse um, 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Then even look over at verse 44. He's telling the disciples, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he's telling the disciples, I told you guys that everything written about me in the Old Testament had to be fulfilled. So the, the two followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus are saying, we thought that he was a great prophet. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. And Jesus is telling them, you should have thought bigger. I wasn't just coming to save Israel. I was coming to provide and offer salvation to the whole world. And he did that by showing them from, like he says, the law, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And just to give you one from, uh, one from each of those, one, this is one, not three. The book of Exodus, chapter 12, Moses wrote Exodus. Chapter 12, he writes of the Passover. As the Israelites were in Egypt and enslaved, and God was going to redeem them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and take them to the promised land, the final culmination of that freedom would come through the wrath of God being poured out on Egypt, that the firstborn of every family would die. But God told Moses, for my people, 
they want to be passed over, if they don't want my wrath poured out on them, they must sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of that lamb over the doorway of their house. So when the angel of death comes to bring the wrath of God, he will see the blood of the lamb and pass over that house. So the wrath of God will not be poured out. So Jesus, as he explained to them on the road to Emmaus in the 12 in the upper room, or the 11, sorry, he's showing them, I am that Passover lamb. Jesus was showing them that my blood poured out for you was poured out so that the wrath of God would pass over you and you could experience the grace of God poured out on you instead. The Savior, the hope of the world, the propitiation that turns away God's wrath so we could have his grace. I think about Psalm 22 that Jesus quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, Jesus knows what it's like to be forsaken by God the Father. He went through that so that you and I would not have to ever, we would never know what it feels like to be forsaken by God. If you are in Jesus Christ, you will never know what it's like to be forsaken by God because of what he did for you. See, friends, he wasn't just coming to redeem Israel. He was coming to provide redemption for every single one who believes in him. Think of Isaiah 53, a prophet who said, all of us like sheep have turned astray, have gone away, but Jesus bore our sins on the cross. That the punishment that was put on him brought us peace. So it was the punishment we deserved, but he took it on that cross so we could have peace with God. It's by his wounds that we are healed. Jesus is saying, guys, ladies, you should have thought bigger. You should have thought better. Coming to be the savior of the world. He's better than you think. That's just one example of how we tend to underestimate what God's doing. There's another little phrase on this idea of Jesus is better than you think that I love. Look at verse 41. They're caught up in this doubt. They're thinking he's a ghost. And it says, while they were, while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy. Here's what Luke is showing us. Part of their disbelief that there's no way Jesus is actually standing in front of me, was driven by, it says, their joy. And then if you look down at verse 52, they worshiped him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Friends, they weren't just doubting because there's no way. They're they're saying, there's no way that the one who created the heavens and the earth but died for my sins, who loves me intimately, even though he is infinite. There's no way that the one who has been completely satisfying to my soul, there's no way that the one who has brought more life and more joy than anything or anyone else in this world, there's no way this one is alive because he's everything. See, they're realizing it's not just what Jesus did for them, it's that they get to be with him. Y'all see what I'm saying there? That the joy of being in the presence of God. Psalm 16 says that in God's presence is joy and pleasure forevermore. See, I think what's happening at the beginning to realize and wrestle with, because Jesus is alive from the dead, our sin has been paid for. We've trusted in him. We've received that free gift. Our sin is paid for. We don't have to go to hell. We get to be with Jesus, the most satisfying one we would ever know. We get to be with him forever. Listen, You don't respond that way to someone that you just think is in charge of giving you rules to follow. 
Like, I think if Jesus, if the disciples only saw Jesus as a rule giver, I think that when they realized he was alive, they might have been like, oh boy, okay. Right? No, they're ecstatic and can't believe, like their joy is driving them almost to disbelief because there's no one more life-giving than Jesus. If you know Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. That yes, you're grateful for what he accomplished, but you're also grateful that you get to be in his presence. Again, we don't just celebrate an event. We celebrate a person. He's better than you think. Joy everlasting in his presence. You may say to that, well, okay. But there's no way, even though he's the savior, even though he died for sins, There's no way he'd want me. There's no way he would pursue me. I will tell you our third point is this. You're never too far for the reach of Jesus. You're never too far for the reach of Jesus. You've never gone so far from God. You've never sinned so much that his grace can't reach you. It's interesting in Luke 24 that there's kind of, there's a shift in verbiage. So if you look through Luke and when Jesus began his ministry and he called out 12 men to be his disciples throughout the rest of that book, the book after that point, he, uh, Luke refers to the 12, the 12 that were following Jesus. But did you notice as we were reading chapter 24, two times it refers to not the 12, but to the 11. So like in verse nine, it says, returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the 11. And then in verse 33, that very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, they found the 11. So 12 minus 11 is one. We're missing one. Who are we missing? Missing Judas. Yeah, that was not the time to give the Sunday school answer, right? <laughs> yeah, just kidding. We're missing Judas. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to give you um, context. I'm going to read a little bit of Matthew 27 for you. We know what happened to Judas in Matthew 27, starting verse 3. It says, then Judas, his betrayer, so the one who betrayed Jesus, told the religious leaders where he would be so they could arrest him. Seeing that, says Judas, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us? They said. See to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed. Then he went and hanged himself. It appears, I think, pretty clear from the text that Judas felt so much shame, so much guilt, so much condemnation from what he had done. They said, there's no way God would have anything to do with me. I think that's what drove him to kill himself. He looked what was happening to Jesus, that he, he literally says, I betrayed innocent blood. I think he, he felt like I'm hopeless, too far gone. But if I was a friend of Judas, if I could travel back in time and 
It seems like he was isolated right now, but if I could have a conversation with Judas, I would tell him, Judas, no one is too far for the reach of Jesus. How do you know that? How can you say that? Because as Jesus was being condemned, he was being condemned for your sin, Judas. That's the very reason he went to the cross, because of your sin. And Romans 8 tells us that therefore, now if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. If you know Jesus, you don't have to stand condemned, even though every single one of us deserve death, hell, and condemnation to be separated from God. If you're in Christ, there's no, there's now no condemnation because Jesus bore that condemnation on the cross. He bore that shame of your sin on the cross. It was nailed there. He paid the final price for your sin on that cross. So Judas, don't give up hope because that's why Jesus came. Because yes, you are wretched and sinful. And as Jesus told us, it's not the sick, excuse me, it's not the well, the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And that's why I came. So Judas, yes, you are sick and you're exactly who Jesus came for. Friend, no one is too far for Jesus. There's no heart too hard, no soul too lost, no child too in the mud. Jesus can save anyone. Well, how could, how could that, how can we be sure of that? Because he rose from the dead. That's the point that he paid the price for your sin. And then he proved his power to save his power to redeem by coming out of that grave. You know, John three sixteen does not say for God so loved the world, except for Judas. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Friend, do not enter your name in there. For God so loved the world, but Brandon. No, for God so loved you and me that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. Every single one who will believe and turn to him for salvation. I love what Dr. Tony Evans said, that when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. His provision for salvation, that the sacrifice had been made. But he did not say that he was finished. He's still redeeming. He's still saving. He's still healing and calling people to himself right now in this very moment because Jesus is alive. Friend, you are never too far for the reach of Jesus. And I'm gonna, I've been praying that even right now, that some of you, like the two walking on the road to Emmaus, would sense Jesus speaking to you and you feel him burning in your heart, calling you to himself. You know what, friend, you don't have to get your act together. You don't have to prove something to God. If you could do that, then he wouldn't have had to die for you. No, you don't have to do anything except to come to him with empty hands and say, Jesus, I'm a mess, but I believe that you made a mess out of your life on that cross long before I did. So Jesus, I, I give you my heart. I give you my life. I receive your forgiveness. Jesus, would you save me? I want to follow you as my Lord. The Bible says that when you call on him, you will be saved. Not maybe, not if you, if, not like he's on a probation period. Well, let me watch you for six months, see if you're real. No, when you call on his name, he saves you right then and there. If you sense Jesus calling you this morning, would you please pick up the call? <laughs> Say, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust you. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 